platform. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is Speak Free Radio, uh, simulcasting Eurofolk Radio. And today is November 26, 2023. If I sound a little out of breath, it's because I'm recovering from a really horrible flu that I caught in in California and uh, Nevada. I've been there all week. And uh, typically when I get on an airplane, I seem to catch something from somebody. And uh, it, uh, it's still fo- following me around, <laughs> okay? But uh, the uh, the sound on our, our our presentation is good. That's the encouraging. Yeah, nothing better than good sound on a radio station. So welcome, everybody. Today is going to be another installment of our series on Satan's counterfeit, namely Judaism, Judaism unmasked, and the... Uh, the evils of that religion and the evils of those people. So let's uh, let's get into it. Pharis- uh, we're getting into the Pharisaism and the Talmud of the book, the book by which the rabbis go. Last week, we started talking about the disgusting rabbis of hate, which is... Uh, the current uh, category. Unfortunately, I can't share this document. It's not online yet. I will uh, endeavor to get it online soon. But my webmaster, who is overseas, is unable to uh, break himself free to make these adjustments. So, uh, But in due time, we'll have this document available at anglo-sectionisrael.com. But let's continue. The Disgusting Rabbis of Hate. The following appeared on the November-December 2000 issue of America's Bulletin. The Canadian Intelligence Service, except excerpt from the September 1952 issue, submitted by James Morehouse. The following speech was given by Rabbi Emmanuel Rabinovich before a special meeting of the Emergency Council of European Rabbis in Budapest, Hungary, January 12, 1952. Now, of course... These types of quotations are pretty much available everywhere. It's just a matter of the fact that the average Christian and the average citizen of every country is not made aware of these hateful statements by rabbis against the goyim. And, of course, if you're not a Jew, you're a goyim. If you're white, you're twice goyim. And if you're white and Christian, you're three times the goyim, and they hate you even much, even more. So this is the reality of our situation vis-a-vis the perfidious Jew. And uh, it says, quote, 
the goal for which we have striven so concertedly for 3,000 years is at last within our reach. And because its fulfillment is so apparent, it was apparent to them anyway, it behooves us to, well, as this is right after World War II, right? We have decimated Europe by two Jew-contrived wars and uh, actually another, a third Jew-contrived war being the war in Korea that was created by the Jew Jew and Jew created United Nations organization and everything the reason why the 20th century is referred to glowingly by the Jews themselves as the Jewish century is because the Jews had so much success destroying Western civilization with their contrived wars and their economic policies and uh, various sorts of depravity using mass media, using art, using the movies, etc., etc. Total depravity coming from the Jewish religion. So let's continue. He said, it it behooves us to increase our efforts and our caution ten full so they could smell the prize because he says it's fulfillment that our for three our 3000 years of effort is being fulfilled as we speak but we still have to wait a little while because we have to increase our beobachten our observation we have to be more careful in our observations because the closer you get to the prize as is happening in the world today the more people become Jew savvy and realize that the Jews are the ones behind all of this craziness going on in the world, which seems to be random unless you become Jew, Jew, ravvy, <laughs> Jew savvy. And Jew savviness is the order of the day, folks. More and more people are beginning to turn their eyes upon the Jew and realizing the Jew is behind all the evil in the world. No doubt about it. All, all their competition is child's play and amateurs compared to the international Jew. So he says, I can safely promise you that before 10 years have passed, our race, that is his people, the Viper people, will take its rightful place in the world with every Jew a king and every Gentile a slave. Now, if you've been listening to the broadcast by Pastor Emery, you will know, which is just came just before this, that a Gentile, that's a Latin word not describing anybody, uh, a Goya is a nation, and uh, an ethos is a nation in both the Greek and the Hebrew. It would never distinguish uh, between a Jew and a non-Jew, although that's the way the Jews use the word Gentile. We will openly reveal our identity with the races of Asia and Africa. Well, it means that Jews are everywhere. They have infiltrated every single nation, every single country, every race, every ethnic group, unless those ethnic group is so poor it's not worth impersonating. Anyway, they have impersonated and infiltrated every single ethnic group on the surface of the earth. And that's because they need to make sure they can control everything. They will control the banking operations of every country in the world, including the Muslim countries, even though they don't believe in usury. Muslim nations do banking business with the international Jew. Continuing, I can state with assurance that the last generation of white children is now being born. We're almost there. Not quite. 
he's a little optimistic here because this is January 12, 1952, and we are here in 2023. So 50 years later, and we still are having white people born. They haven't uh, curbed our our enthusiasm for reproduction among our own kind. They've been trying really hard by importing non-whites into our nations. Oh, boy, do I have stories to tell you about my trip to and from California. My goodness. Talk about multi-culti. The airports are loaded with non-whites. It's almost like white people, especially among the employees. My airplane flight out from Kansas City to California had no white personnel except for the pilot who was a white female. I couldn't I didn't get my eyes on to the co pilot, couldn't tell. And my return flight had one white stewardess and three non whites and but had a white male pilot. And that flight went really well. Both flights went really well because we had white pilots. (laughs) If I didn't realize we had a white pilot on either flight, I would have gotten off. Anyway, so, but the airports are just loaded, absolutely loaded, loaded, loaded with non-whites. And it was something to see. Well, it was at least, uh, let me put it this way. It's about 60-40 in favor of non-whites. Asians. Asians everywhere, Mexicans everywhere, blacks, but it was mainly Asians. But, of course, I was in California, so you might expect that in California. So, and, and of course, Mexicans. Well, not so many blacks this trip. Depends on which part of the country you go to. So, anyway, let's continue. Uh, so, our identity with the races of Asia and Africa, well, they've infiltrated them as well. But then this braggadocio, I can state with assurance that the last generation of white children is now being born. Let me just interject here real quick. Uh, Brother Michael's not with us today. He's out hunting. He likes to do that. (laughs) He he likes to go hunting and uh, leave me holding the bag. But, of course, this is a good bag to hold because it's the bag of truth that we need to be sharing with everybody in the world. So we see that throughout the writings of the Jews, which are not publicized by the mainstream press and certainly not publicized by the uh, churches, that we are in a situation where if we don't publicize it, nobody else will. Nobody else will. So we're doing this because it's our duty. And actually, we have a lot of fun doing it because we uh, I like exposing Jews for what they really are. I just wish more people would be listening to us rather than listening to the Jew. So after bragging about the last, uh, what do you call it, a generation of white babies being born after that brag, he says, our control commissions will, in the interest of peace, uh, In the interest of peace, we must commit racial genocide against white people. Our control commissions will, in the interest of peace and wiping out our interracial tensions, forbid the whites to mate with whites. 
Now that much they have established. Without having a law passed to that effect, they have conditioned white people to interbreed with non-whites. Although they haven't done a complete job of it, there are still white people mating with other whites. And I think that will continue until the until the schools fail. And that's part of the problem. I think they mis, misunderstood the trouble with which they would have in integrating the schools and keeping the schools flourishing. Because you can only teach, you can only stupidify so many white people before they stop going, especially white men, to, until they stop going to college and realize that college is not for them. So there's always going to be this remnant of white people who refuse to comply with racial integration. And that is a good thing. I think they've probably wiped out, you know, starting from 1910, the First World War, almost 50% of the white race on planet Earth. But it's getting harder and harder to wipe out the rest of us because people are becoming Jew savvy. And the more our people become savvy, the bigger and more expensive the extermination will become for the Jews. And of course, and the longer it takes, the more they begin infighting among themselves, wanting to profit from their COVID, COVID uh, annihilation of our people. They're not interested in uh, being, how should I put, sharing the wealth with other Jews. <laughs> okay, this is what happens when parasites take take control of the hive. The parasites start fighting each other over the food. And we are their food, folks. Don't you, uh, don't you ever forget that, that they rely on us for their food, whether it's eating our produce or eating our bodies as cannibals, they will be fighting over our flesh and over our produce. This is the reality of the perfidious Jew. It continues. Well, let me repeat this. We must forbid the whites to mate with white. The white woman must cohabit with members of the dark races, the white men with black women. Thus, the white race will disappear. For mixing the dark with white means the end of the white man and our most dangerous enemy will become only a memory. Well, 50 years down the road, we're still here. We shall embark upon an era of 10,000 years of peace and plenty, the Pax Judaica, and our race will rule undisputed over the world. Our superior intelligence will easily enable us to retain mastery over a world of dark people, unquote. Well, that's, of course, what they're shooting for. Rulership over a, a planet full of dark races, okay, which they can easily control because they know they can't control the white race as long as we exist. We have a built-in uh, sense of, well, honor, for one thing, but productivity. That, And then what, what we produce, we want to keep. And we see, those of us who are savvy, the Jew has taken over world government to such an extent that it steals for our productivity from us constantly, despite the fact that the Bible clearly states that you are every Israelite is to 
retained the fruits of his own labor, the, the Jew exists to, re, to steal the fruits of our labor. That's exactly why they're here. That's exactly why their father, Lucifer, put them on this planet. So we're going to have a, a real war, folks. Uh, this is going to be interesting because as more and more become Jew-savvy, and the Jew finds it more and more expensive to control our thinking and our behavior. I mean, COVID was a really uh, brilliant maneuver, a really brilliant maneuver on the part of the international Jew. And, of course, if you don't know it, all of the big pharmaceutical companies around the world are owned by Jews. Certainly the vaccine corporations are owned by Jews and you know, the, that, the reason they got control of these corporations was to make sure that we get injected with their poisons. But there have always been enough of us who are Jew savvy to stay away from Jew poison. Although I'd have to say, in speaking with the people I met with in Nevada and California recently, their families have succumbed to Jew poison. A great deal. One person I talked to said her mother was being treated with up to 30 different Jew poisons, is in a nursing home vegetating, and there's nothing they can do about it. My wife was trained as a nurse, and I could not talk her out of getting vaccinations. And she eventually got dementia and died of cancer, which she got from that Jew poison. But she would not believe it was Jew poison. She thought it was good for her. And I said, no, darling, it's not good for you. It's poison. It's Jew poison, by the way. And she didn't like me when <laughs> she didn't like it when I said that, especially in front of other people. Yeah, Swamp Fox, not much chance of anything good coming from California again. You got that right, right? Yeah. So I'm on a crusade to make planet Earth Jew savvy. In fact, I'm writing a book called Jew Savvy. It's going to be the, uh, it's actually going to be a, what do you call it? The, uh, when you do a follow-up book, the, the prelude, the prelude is the international Jew by Henry Ford. And the follow-up is going to be Jew Savvy because it's not going to be very much of a religious book. It's just going to be the, the details of how the Jews have been trying to destroy the white race for the last 2,000 years. Now, it's interesting that this rabbi talks about 3,000 years. Why would he talk about 3,000 years going back to when? And I don't see a very clear line of demarcation. He doesn't mention it in his document here or in this quotation the closest thing I can come to, you know, 1000 BC, would be would have to be the captivity of the ten northern tribes that occurred around 950 BC. But that didn't include the Jews. The Jews were not part of that. Uh, they can't even. They don't even like to mention that captivity because that's only the ten northern tribes, plus Benjamin and Judah. And maybe the reason that maybe they count that as a day of glory for them. 
And then the the captivity into Judah was much later. So that, but that was must be the beginning point for this rabbi when the ten northern tribes were taken north and we became the Caucasian people. But the Jews pretending to be Judah are not part of that migration. So he must be counting uh, Jews as Judah from that point on. That must be his reason. I can't imagine any other major development historically for our people that uh, would count. Okay, anyway, let me repeat the last sentence. Our superior intelligence will easily enable us to retain mastery over a world of dark people. I mean, it just says it right there that uh, this is the Jewish master plan. And this is, end of quote, N.P. Purvis, editor. This next is an excerpt from the same speech found in the book, The World's Troublemakers. (laughs) Who might those be? The struggle against the Gentiles. Of course, Gentile, as used by the Jews, has a totally different meaning as used in Scripture. It's one of those words that the Jews like to redefine for themselves and brainwash us into using their definitions as opposed to scriptural definitions. Speaking of the Third World War, okay, I think we're in the Third World War. Although there's been constant warfare in the entire 20th century and has spilled over into the 21st century. But, but I think he's also referring to the three world wars prophesied by Albert Pike in the, uh, what's the title of the book? The uh, Morals and Dogma, which is the code book of Freemasonry, Morals and Dogma. But Albert Pike was also head of global, not just uh, Freemasonry, but the Illuminati. Albert Pike was the head of the global Illuminati at the time as well when he wrote Morals and Dogma. So he's incorporating a lot of Illuminati knowledge into that book where he prophesied three world wars. And the last world war would be a fight between Christianity and Islam. A fight to the death. Of course, this is how the Jews would use the Muslims to destroy the white Christian world. Okay, so that's World War III, according to Morals and Dogma, and I'm sure that's what Rabbi Ravinovich has in mind here as well. This war will end for all time the struggle against the Gentiles. Our race will rule undisputed over the world. And so, with vision of world victory before you, go back to your countries and intensify your good work. Until that approaching day when Israel, that is Jewry, will reveal herself in all her glorious destiny as the light of the world. Of course, that is the light of Lucifer, as Morals and Dogma also proclaims that we Freemasons and we Illuminati believe and follow Lucifer, not Yahweh Elohim. The rabbinical significance of the Talmud versus the Mosaic Law is as follows, excerpts from an article by Michael Hoffman II. The truth about the Talmud 
a documented expose of supremacist rabbinical hate literature by Michael Hoffman. And it's copyrighted in 2006. The Talmud is Judaism's holiest book, actually a collection of books. Its authority takes precedence over the Old Testament in Judaism. Evidence of this may be found in the Talmud itself. Erubin 21b, Sansino edition, quote, My son, be more careful in the observance of the words of the scribes than in the words of the Torah, meaning, of course, the Old Testament. Torah is actually the first five books of Moses that we call the Pentateuch. They call that Torah. The supremacy of the Talmud over the Bible in the Israeli state may also be seen in the case of the black Ethiopian Jews. Ethiopians are very knowledgeable of the Old Testament. However, their religion is so ancient it predates the scribes' Talmud, of which the Ethiopians have no knowledge. According to the New York Times of September 29, 1992, page 4, the problem is that the Ethiopian Jewish tradition goes no further than the Bible or Torah. The later Talmud and other commentaries that form the basis of modern translations never came their way, or traditions, rather. Okay, so the clear admission that the Talmud post-dates the Torah, whereas, for the most part, the Jews equate Talmud and Torah in the most of their writings. But here, and when they expelled the black Ethiopians from Israel, they made this admission that the, the black Ethiopians never had the Talmud. And it's a good thing they don't, because they'd be far worse off. <laughs> they'd be even worse than they are now. All right. Because they are not traffickers in Talmudic tradition, the black Ethiopian Jews are discriminated against and have been forbidden by the Zionists to perform marriages, funerals, and other services in the Israeli state. Now, of course, we know that the Jews are the most tolerant people on the face of the earth, so therefore we would expect them to kick the Jew, the black Ethiopians out. Right? Oh, no apartheid whatsoever. Rabbi Joseph D. Soloveitchuk is regarded as one of the most influential rabbis of the 20th century. The unchallenged leader of Orthodox Judaism and the top international authority on Halakha, which is Jewish religious law, Soloveitchuk was responsible for instructing and ordaining more than 2,000 rabbis, an entire generation of Jewish leadership. New York Times religion reporter Ari Goldman described the basis of the rabbi's authority. Quote, Soloveitchik came from a long line of distinguished Talmudic scholars. Until his early, yeah, until his early 20s, he devoted himself almost exclusively to the study of the Talmud. He came to Yeshiva University's Elchanan Theological Seminary where he remained the preeminent teacher of the Talmud. He held the title of Leib Merkin Professor of Talmud, sitting with his feet crossed in front of a table bearing an open volume of the Talmud, unquote. This is in the New York Times, April 10th, 1993, page 38. 
Not a single mention of the Bible here. And even if they mention, if they call, they use the word Torah, they mean Talmud instead of the Bible. You have to read between the lines. You have to know their code words and not swallow their lies. Okay? You have to, you have to be Jew savvy, right? <laughs> yes, scribes. He who controls the past controls everything. All right? Yeah, and the scribes figured out how to, how to print money. Yeah, that's right. That was almost done in Babylon, the, the third beast of Revelation. Ancient Babylon is where they invented the fractional reserve banking system, but they were used, they were inflating the currency using uh, clay tablets. It's harder to uh, create inflation with clay tablets than it is with paper money. So paper money makes it really easy, really easy. But that's another story. Anyway, so. So the Jews are hunter-gatherers, but they use money as the bait. That's how the Jews do it. Okay? And they dangle that bait in front of the Gentiles until they <laughs> turn in their gold for paper money. Right? That's how it works, folks. Paper money and inflation. Because without paper money... It's really hard to inflate the money supply. If you can't inflate the money supply, you can't spend the money as it comes off the printing press. See, and a Jew controls who spends the money that comes off the printing press. They don't control gold and silver that way. They don't control clay tablets that way either. That would be really heavy. <laughs> clay tablets would be really heavy to carry around. You'd need several donkeys to carry your, uh, uh, what do you call it, your, your clay tablets into the bank. So, so this is the unchallenged leader of current Jewry. Well, I don't know, he's probably dead by now. This, this article goes back to 1993. So who is the new ruler of world Jewry? Not sure. Nowhere does Goldman refer to Soloveitchik's knowledge of the Bible as the basis for being one of the leading authorities on Jewish law. That's because the Bible is not a Jewish book. Jesus was not a Jew. None of the prophets in the Old Testament were Jews. They were all Israelites. The rabbi's credentials are all predicated upon his mastery of the Talmud. Other studies are clearly secondary. Britain's Jewish Chronicle of March 26, 1993 states that in religious school, yeshiva, Jews are devoted to the Talmud to the exclusion of everything else, which obviously excludes the Bible. The Talmud nullifies the Bible is the next heading here. The Jewish scribes claim the Talmud is partly a collection of traditions of Moses that which gave which Moses gave them in oral form. These had not yet been written down in Jesus' time. Christ condemned the traditions of the Mishnah, early Talmud, and those who taught it, scribes and Pharisees, because the Talmud nullifies the teachings of the Holy Bible. That it does. Shmuel, now it's interesting, because Hoffman 
does not understand that the same thing is true of Catholicism. Catholicism actually created a lot of unbiblical traditions as well. But he focuses here mainly on Judaism. Shmuel Safari, <laughs> Safrai, Shmuel Safrai, in the literature of the sages, part one, page 164, points out that in chapters four and five of the Talmud's Gittim Tractate, the Talmud nullifies the biblical teaching concerning money lending. Quote, Hillel decreed the prosbul, P-R-O-Z-B-U-L, the prosbul for the betterment of the world. <laughs> the prosbul is a legal fiction which allows debt to be collected after the sabbatical year, and it was Hillel's intention thereby to overcome the fear that moneylenders had of losing their money, unquote. Okay, well, certainly the Jews don't teach the the, the uh, cancellation of debts every 49 years, which the Bible calls the Jubilee year. The Jews have never practiced the Jubilee in their lives. That's because they never practiced the Bible ever in their lives or in their history because the Jews are Edomites, Canaanites, and Khazars and have no uh, no allegiance to our book called the Bible. So anyway, they make up these fictitious terms like Gentile. Now here's another fictitious term, prosbul. Mark that down in your list of Jewish terms that are not in the Bible, but which the Jews claim are in the Bible. Prosbul. It's not, it sounds like a Russian term. It's probably a Russian rabbi. P-R-O-Z-B-U-L. Prosbul is a legal fiction which allows death to be collected after the sabbatical year, and it was Hillel's intention thereby to overcome the fear for the money lenders of losing their money. Now, I don't know how many rabbis are actually bankers. That's a question I've never looked into. But maybe, you know, the partnership between the rabbis and the moneylenders is so great. The, uh, the It's like a uh, two sides of the same coin. The moneylenders make sure the, Jew, the rabbis have plenty of operating funds for their rituals. And then the the rabbis make sure they produce enough bankers from their marriages and from their their rituals to make sure there's always a Jewish banking class so the two work together. But I'm not sure how many rabbis actually are bankers at the same time. It, that's an interesting question. Maybe it's one of those, you know, they have to keep those two distinct, separate and distinct, so there, no Jew has a monopoly on both. I don't know. All right, let's continue. The Jewish scribes claim the Talmud is partly a collection of traditions Moses gave them in oral form. But these had not been written down yet in Christ's time, but Christ saw through their act. No no problem. This is why the Jews ignore... Okay, he makes a note here. Oh, actually, it's my note on his writing here. This is why the Jews ignore the law of Jubilee according to which all debts must be forgiven every 49th year. Continuing now, the famous warning of Jesus Christ about the tradition of men that void scripture, Mark 7, 1 through, 
Mark 7, 1 through 13, is in fact a direct reference to the Talmud, or more specifically the forerunner of the first part of it, the Mishnah, which existed in oral form during Christ's lifetime, before being committed to writing. Mark chapter 7, from verse 1 through 13, represents our Lord's pointed condemnation of the Mishnah. Now, I'm sure the Mishnah is where the Jews created this false teaching that Yahweh's name is too holy to be pronounced, distorting the actual teaching of the Bible, which is, you shall not take his name in vain. Okay, so the Jews changed it to, you cannot say it at all. The Jews distort everything, absolutely everything, including their own teachings. And that's okay because it it just makes more food for thought for the yeshiva. So should we have changed that? Sure, no problem. We change it all the time. Unfortunately, due to the abysmal ignorance of our day, the widespread Judeo-Christian notion is that the Old Testament is the supreme book of Judaism. But this is not so. The Pharisees teach for doctrine the commandments of rabbis, not God. The Talmudic commentary on the Bible is their supreme law and not the Bible itself. That commentary does indeed, as Jesus said, void the laws of God, not uphold them. As students of the Talmud, we know this to be true. Jewish scholar Chaim Maccabi in Judaism on Trial quotes Rabbi Yehiel ben Joseph, quote, Further, without the Talmud, we would not be able to understand passages in the Bible. God has handed this authority to the sages and tradition as a necessary as well as scripture. The sages also make enactment of their own. Anyone who does not study the Talmud cannot understand scripture. Actually, I could make a statement similar to that. Anyone who does not read my book, The Great Impersonation, will not be able to understand scripture. There's too much disinformation to wade through. So my book, The Great Impersonation, is indeed a guidebook as to how to study the Bible and how to read the Bible. And it's really important right from the very first verses, right? Because you can't understand Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 unless you understand the two seed line message. And you won't get that in your typical church. And you won't get that from the Jews either. Even though the Jews will admit that uh, there, there were other, uh, that they, there were two seed lines coming out of the garden. They just drop the matter there and don't pick up on who's who, which, which seed line is which. Okay. So you're, you're doing, you're doing really well. If you can wade through all of the false inter- uh, translations uh, contained in the first few verses, uh, you know, in those first three chapters. And, uh, it's really amazing. You really have to start looking up word studies from the very first chapter in order to understand what's going on. And you can't do that in mainstream Christianity. That They will simply not teach you anything like that. You simply have to accept the translation given to you by King James, etc., and go from there. So you're not likely to learn anything from those sources. Simply unlikely. So let's continue. 
And I'm reading from Satan's Counterfeit, which is my sequel to the uh, Henry Ford's, Henry Ford's book, okay, uh, which is the International Jew. So you really need to know the Jewish religion and how it applies, how they apply it to the world to understand Judaism, okay? Because it's not biblical, it's not scriptural, it's not Torah. There is a tiny Jewish sect which makes considerable effort to eschew Talmud and adhere to the Old Testament alone. These are the Karaites, a group which historically has been most hated and severely persecuted by Orthodox Jewish rabbinate. Well, they're actually not Jews. They are the remnant of the ten lost tribes still living in Palestine. There's a big difference between those two. The Jews never originated as Israelites. They originated as Canaanites and Khazars. And in the, in the Old Testament, Canaanites and Edomites. Those are the only two types of Jews that existed at that time. So these people were not Judah. They were not Israel. They were Judeans. And that's where the confusion comes in. In the New Testament, the word Judean is simply a territorial term and can refer to the house of Judah and or Edomites and Canaanites living in Judea. And if you don't get the difference between a Judahite and a Judean, you cannot understand the New Testament. But there, there's those two famous passages, Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, beware of those who say they are Jews and are not, <laughs> or who are Judah and are not, they are the synagogue of Satan. So who's the synagogue of Satan? True Judah or the fake Judahites called Judeans in the New Testament, or also called Jews, okay? So they need to have this uh, this group, which they can hate on, who's, <laughs> they're, they're treating the Karaites as if they were impersonating Jews. No, they're not. Okay, who would want to impersonate a Jew? Nobody. So these Karaites are actually Palestinian Israelites who are still living in Palestine, the, the remnant of the ten lost tribes. But uh, their numbers are dwindling rapidly, so they're, they're not going to be able to ha put up any fight against the international Jew. Okay, so. But it's important to make note of the Karaites because they still condemn the Talmud to this day. All right. To the Mishnah, the rabbis later added the Gemara, rabbinical commentaries. Together, these comprise the Talmud. There are two versions, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is regarded as the authoritative version. Quote, the authority of the Babylonian Talmud is also greater than that of the Jerusalem Talmud. In case of doubt, the former is decisive, unquote, says R.C. Musaf hyphen Andres from Torah to Kabbalah, a basic introduction to the writings of Judaism, page 40. 
So if you care to read Jewish literature, you, you can find these all, find out all these things for yourself. But who's got the time to do that, right? So it's a good thing that people have writ, written critiques of the Talmud for our benefit. And believe me, we're going to uh, need <laughs> need this type of commentary to deal with the Jews, at least on an intellectual basis, okay? But it's important to note also that the Babylonian Talmud is the original Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud came later. And Judaism is Babylonianism. It is Babylonian religion, period. That's what it is. It has nothing to do with the Bible. And so from this book, uh, the Talmud here, Moed Katan, 17a, if a Jew is tempted to do evil, he should go to a city where he is not known and do the evil there. <laughs> okay. So you thought the Jews were holy people? Penalty for disobeying rabbis. Erubin 21b. Whosoever disobeys the rabbis deserves death and will be punished by being boiled in hot excrement in hell. Well, that's the punishment they inflicted on Jesus, or they claim to have, in the Talmud. Hitting a Jew is the same as hitting God. Well, which God? Let me take a swipe at Satan. Bust his jaw. Sanhedrin 58b. If a heathen or Gentile hits a Jew... The Gentile must be killed. So be sure there's no Jewish witnesses around when you bust a Jew's jaw. It's okay to cheat non-Jews. Sanhedrin 57a. A Jew need not pay a Gentile, Cuffian in the book, the wages owed to him for work. Jews have superior legal status. Baba Kama 37b. Now, of course, we must realize that all Jews promote the equality of the races in their public statements to the rest of the races, right? And uh, we love everybody. God loves everybody. You know, they, they promote egalitarianism in all of their public statements, but not in their Talmud, not in private, not among themselves. Baba Kama 37b. If an ox of an Israelite, meaning a Jew, gores an ox of a Canaanite, there is no liability. But of course, Jews are Canaanites, so they treat each other as such. But if an ox of a of another Jew, of a Canaanite Jew, gores an ox of an Israelite, or another Jew, the payment is to be in full. Jews may steal from non-Jews. Abba Mezia 24a. If a Jew finds an object lost by a, a heathen, it does not have to be returned. Affirmed also in the Baba Kama 113b, Sanhedrin 76a. God will not spare a Jew who marries his daughter to an old man or takes a wife for his infant son or returns a lost article to a Kothian. <laughs> okay? It's forbidden. Anything lost by a Christian must be kept. 
So better not leave anything laying around. If there's Jews, if there's Jews present, Sanhedrin 57a. A Jew need not pay a Gentile. The wages owed him for work. How many? How many people? Oh, I, I can't tell you. Countless numbers of people that I've worked with who've done jobs for Jews and haven't gotten paid. Okay, it's typical for Jews to that. They consider it their law to not pay a Gentile if they can get away with it. Jews have superior legal status. Baba Kama, 37b. If an ox of an Israelite gores an ox of a Canaanite... Oh, okay, I think I... I think I read that. Jews may steal from non-Jews. If a Jew finds an object lost by a Gentile, it does not have to be returned. Jews may rob and kill non-Jews. Sanhedrin 57a. When a Jew murders a Gentile, Cuthian, there will be no death penalty. What a Jew steals from a Gentile may be kept. Baba Kama 37b. The Gentiles are outside the protection of the law, and God has exposed their money to Israel. Okay. Better not leave your money laying around. Where are Jew? <laughs> Jews may lie to non-Jews. Okay, and they love doing so. Abakama 113a. Jews may use lies, subterfuges, to circumvent a goy. Non-Jewish children are subhuman. Yabamoth 98a. All Gentile children are animals. Abodazara 36b. Gentile girls are in a state of nida. Filth from birth, I guess, until a Jew marries one <laughs> or has sex with one or goes to a non Jewish prostitute. Okay, but I guess it doesn't matter. Does a Jew become unclean if he has sex with an unclean woman? I guess not. A Bodazera 22a to 22b. Gentiles prefer sex with cows. Oh. Insults against the Blessed Mary. Sanhedrin 106a says Jesus' mother was a whore. Quote, she who was the descendant of princes and governors played the harlot with carpenters. Also in footnote number two to Shabbat 104b of the Sassino edition, it is stated that in the uncensored text of the Talmud, it is written that the Jesus mother, Miriam the hairdresser, had sex with many men. Okay, so this is how if only Catholics knew. Now, there was a time when the Catholic Church was aware of the Talmud and forbade uh, Jews to uh, testify in court because they knew that they had, you know, taken oaths of this kind, and uh, that they hated non non Israel or non Jews. All right, but this is a type of thing that uh, the Catholic Church has now overlooked since Vatican II, when the uh, Jews basically took over the Catholic Church. Okay. 
and they gloat over the fact that Christ died young. A passage from Sanhedrin 106 gloats over the early age at which Jesus died. Quote, Hast thou heard how old Balaam, Jesus, was? He replied, It's not actually stated, but since it is written, Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. It follows that he was 33 or 34 years old. Jesus in the Talmud. Horrible blasphemies against Jesus the Christ, for sure. Horrible. (laughs) While it is the standard disinformation practice of apologists for the Talmud to deny that it contains any scurrilous references to Jesus Christ, certain Orthodox Jewish organizations are more forthcoming and admit that the Talmud made... Talmud not only mentions Jesus, but disparages him as a sorcerer and a demented sex freak. These Orthodox Jewish organizations make this admission perhaps out of the belief that Jewish supremacy is so well established in the modern world that they need not concern themselves with adverse reactions. And that is certainly true. The vast majority of top Jews fully believe that they so so control the world that they don't have anything to fear about revelations of this type. Well, the world hasn't ended yet, and it's not going to end well for them. So we need to take uh, real care uh, as to how we engage with the Jews for the rest of our time here on earth, which can't be very long because so many of the prophecies and the scriptures that have been fulfilled all of them pretty much just leading up right to the 11th hour of the judgment day that we're so close we can count we can count the time in years as to what's left anyway uh you're listening to speak free radio and i encourage everybody to go there and look at the uh books available and of course the uh the audios my Kampf, henry ford's the International Jew, the war against whites. Jews are the problem. <laughs> I think that's written by a black guy. My book, The Great Impersonation, uh, Exposing the Lies of History, Deprogramming 101. There have got to be a lot of courses in deprogramming. And Might is Right, uh, Communism by the Back Door. Adolf Hitler, The Greatest Story Never Told, All Kinds of True Hellstorm. You have to listen to Hellstorm. It's available in book and uh, CD. The Host and the Parasite, in the name of Yahweh, and, of course, The Synagogue of Satan by Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. That's the type of material you will find at at the website, moneytreepublishing.com. So I'm going to take a quick break here, and we'll be playing... A, a piece of work by Jonathan David Brown. And let's see. It is The Insane Babylonian. Here we go.
All right. Welcome back, everybody. Pastor Eli James and part two of today's show. And this is Bloodlines. Uh, Speak Free Radio, simulcasting on Eurofolk Radio, and I keep forgetting I have to uh, shut down. <laughs> it, it, it repeats. There we go. It automatically repeats when I play it from StreamYard. So let's continue. And uh, that was quite a lot of stuff from the Talmud. And most of our listeners are familiar with the Talmud, but... Uh, this uh, this document has a lot of quotations, a very, very thorough quotation uh, selection from the Talmud. So I'm just going to scroll down and talk about how uh, perverted <laughs> many, of these, many of these Jews are. Okay. Uh, when Rachel Brazel, the daughter of uh, the... B'nai Brack family married an arranged match from the glorious Brazel family. She had no idea that she was destroying her own life. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, any woman who marries a Jew is destroying her own life, whether she realizes it or not. After six months, she caught her husband having sex with another man. In that case, at least it was with an adult. Oh, no. Oh, no. It gets worse. Shia Brazel relates that some of the boys with whom his father had relations sent letters of complaint to their own fathers. In the discreet ultra-Orthodox society, they had no one else to whom they could complain. Well, that's something you should know about Judaism. It's a closed society. And you have to go within the Jewish court. The Jews have their own court system. And I forget what they call it. They have a name for their own court system. And uh, if you go outside of that, if you're an Orthodox Jew or actually for any other Jew, you don't want to have a a court of law, one Jew against another in a so-called Gentile court. That uh, is not going to work out probably for either Jew. So they try to work out their differences behind closed doors in the Jewish court. So, and so these boys could really find no justice except outside the Jewish system. Let's see if, let's find out if they took their complaint outside the Jewish court. Shaya Brazel, author of a book telling of sodomy in the synagogue. When she reads these letters, my mother went out of her mind, (laughs) writes Brazel. Every such letter made her want to demand a divorce. Again and again, batteries of mediators, the Brazil rabbis, would show up, whose job it was to calm her down so that, heaven forbid, she would not destroy the good name of the Brazil family. <laughs> what good name? The pretended good name, right? So they have rabbis dedicated to the cause of making sure that this type of information does not get out to the world at large. They could live with the fact that one of their own had raped minors, but for them, for them, divorce was an impossible situation, and making the public aware of these things is another impossible situation. Twice, once during prayers in a synagogue and once during a Gemara, a Talmud study hour, at Rabbi Eliezer Shach's Poneve 
Poneves Yeshiva, ultra-Orthodox men who were strangers to him, touched his sexual organ, presumably on the assumption that he followed in his father's footsteps. The first time he made a fuss, only to discover that the only thing that interested the people there was to hush the whole thing up. The second time he made to do a whispered warning to the man. Shia Brazel is now 36 and the father of three. He works as an accountant. So is he a child molester too? His father, 65, was forced to leave home several years ago and returned to his elderly parents' apartment. Shia wrote the, this book after a suicide attempt in June. You think it's it's tough being a Jew, folks. It's really tough. For all those years, I was half dead. Uh, this is a quotation, I guess, from the book. I have been getting psychological treatment. No wonder half the psychologists in the world are Jews. During my talks with the psychologist, I decided that I was going to spew out all the ugliness in the form of a book. Don't you dare, we'll kill you. He took into account that there would be a violent reaction to the book, which only came out a few weeks ago. Brazil suffers from a serious heart defect, which could cause his death. As a way of protecting himself, he has deposited a letter with three lawyers that contained serious allegations about the Edda Haredit, Haredit, I guess that must be a yeshiva. And he has informed the relevant people. That's the way you got to do it. Just before you die, <laughs> just make, make, make it public. Just before you die, make it public and have threats of revelation, public revelations against the, all, the, all the other Jews you know. Ironically, the same Rebbe, oh, wait a minute, there's more to it here, recently has moved to an apartment, and he lives in the national religious sector of a mixed community of national religious and ultra-Orthodox families. Naturally, he started praying at, at the only Hasidic synagogue in the settlement. After the book came out, associates of the local Rebbe informed him that he was persona non grata. Well, at least they didn't murder him. Ironically, the same rabbi had come to the area after being compelled to leave several other communities on suspicion of having sodomized his pupils. <laughs> in ultra-Orthodox society, revealing that acts of sodomy have been committed is a far greater offense than committing them. On the day the book was published, Brazil met with the head of Hechem Lubin Yeshiva, Rabbi Abraham Vasner. Quote, he told me that publishing the book was a million times worse than what my father had done. Unquote. Haaretz has been unable to obtain a response from Rabbi Rekhoff, sorry, Yaakov Yitzek Brazil. At his parents' home, a woman replied, we don't care. Shia is a liar. And there's nothing more to be said. Okay? So, that means all Jews are liars because they're all covering it up except Mr. Brazil. Haaretz also requested the Brazil's response through the Edda Haredi activist Yehudi Meshi Yahav, Zahav rather. By the time the article went to press, there was no response through his channel either. I guess Haaretz has to go through the motions of revealing what once a complaint has been raised and made public, Haaretz has to go through the motions of looking into the matter. Quote, 
Several weeks ago, the fathers responded to the women's magazine, Laisha, saying that he would sue the publishers, which has not yet happened. It is unlikely that it will happen. No, they just want to hush it up. Shia Brazel was ready to put off publication of the book on condition that the family sue him in rabbinical court in which the affair would be aired. He has said that no one in the family was prepared to take up the challenge, not even in a rabbinical court. In the conversation with Laisha, the father said he was indeed a homosexual. <laughs> Quote, but I have had treatment, and today I'm no longer like that. No, sure. All this is behind me. Oh, sure it is, right? In reply to a well, again, Jews get away with this stuff constantly. You just pretend it's behind you. In reply to a question as to whether he had sexual relationships with minors, he replied, quote, perhaps I will talk about that some other time. He accused his son, Shia, of being the only one who is after me. He has destroyed my life. He wrote he wrote this only for the money. <laughs> he wanted the money from me. Because of him, I separated from my wife. Okay. Well, I guess that's the only way the truth will be told by Jews for the money. <laughs> okay. It's incredible. <coughs> These revelations of Jewish life are unbelievable if you don't know Jews at all. You got to be Jew savvy. Okay, after all these quotations from Haaretz and other Jewish magazines, my comment here is, Christianity is the only true religion of the Bible. It was founded by Israelites who adhered to the Torah, Pentateuch, and who recognized in Christ's gospel of salvation through grace the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is the followers of Jesus who constitute the holy nation and the royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2.9. So most of these quotations were taken from Michael Hoffman's book. The truth about the Talmud is copyrighted material accepted by Michael Hoffman, Judaism's strange God. So you'll find this material in that book. Independent and Research, Box 849, Coeur Idaho. Okay, let's continue. Judaism and the Talmud, a rejoinder. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to Yahweh. That's Proverbs 17. I think it's verse 15. There's a typo here. But for one to find out what is true or false, they must look into the matter and hear both sides before they make a final judgment. No, you shall not take the matter into a rabbinical court. <laughs> somebody somebody might be, have to be punished, and they don't want to do that. Quote, The heart of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 18.15 So, you can, all you have to do is compare the Talmud to the Bible to realize that they are light years apart. Okay. Exhibit 1B, quotations bearing the nature of the Jew or exposing the nature of the Jew. Tacitus. Now this is information about the Jews has been available at least for 2,000 years 
if not longer. But when you go to pre-biblical or pre-New Testament quotations, there's a problem of confusing Jews with Israelites. Post-New Testament is pretty much easy to distinguish Jews from Christian Israelites because only Christians uh, are Israelites. They're not Jews. So you have to keep this in mind. As I said earlier, in the Old Testament, the word Jew is translated from Judahite. should never have been translated Jew in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's translated from Judean, which is a territorial word, not a racial word, and refers to anybody living in Judea. And those in your, well, in the New Testament, it's pretty much the, the, all the bad Jews are always Judeans, right, of, that, of the Edomite type. As in uh, John 7, 1, Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, here's Tacitus. The customs of the Jews are base and abominable and owe their persistence to their depravity. (laughs) Jews are extremely loyal to one another, always ready to show compassion, but towards every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. Oh, there's an enmity. Good choice of words. Israel Cohen, a racial program for the 20th century. Century. <laughs> 20th century centaur. Quoted by Congressman Abernathy in the Congressional Record, 1957. Page 8559. We must realize that our party's most powerful weapon is racial tension. By propounding into the consciousness of the dark races that for centuries they have been oppressed by the whites, we can mold them into the, through the program of the Communist Party. In America, we will aim for subtle victory. While inflaming the Negro minority against the whites, we will endeavor to instill in the whites a guilt complex for their exploitation of the Negroes. Supposed exploitation of the Negroes. We will aid the Negroes to rise in prominence in every walk of life in the professions and in the world of sports and entertainment. With this prestige, the Negro will be able to intermarry with the whites and begin a process which will deliver America to our cause. Well, remember, the opening quotation of today's show was from the rabbi in 1952 who thought that uh, their destruction of the white race was imminent. He said there's only one generation of white children left to be born. Unfortunately for them, we're still here and we're still breeding white people. So we better we better stick to that, folks, and not allow the perfidious Jew to change our mating habits. But of course, they've done that to a great extent. Louis Marshalko, quoted in The World Conquerors, page 94. The role of Jewry will be most important in laying the foundation of a new world order. Jewry possesses adaptable characteristics together with outstanding intelligence and extreme cruelty. Ah, kind of like Lucifer. Martin Larson, he was a, a columnist for the Spotlight for many years. Judaism was a racial cult which had its, as its purpose its own aggrandizement, to say the least. The chosen people were to bind themselves together by bonds of mutual solidarity, but all others they might deceive and exploit at will. After the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus, the Jew continued no less conscious of his magnificent destiny 
which caused the fervent author of Fourth Estrus, a Zionist apocrypha, to exclaim, quote, As for the rest of the nations which are sprung from Adam, you have said that they are nothing and we are like spittle. And now, Lord, behold these nations, rule over us and devour us. But we, your people, whom you call your firstborn, only begotten chosen, and beloved, are delivered into their hands. Well, actually, yeah, uh, Martin Larson didn't understand that the Old Testament and even the uh, the Apocrypha were Israelite literature, not Jewish literature. And they, uh, the Jews were never really to defeat us militarily. They could only defeat us by by deception. And so that's what he had been done. It's obvious that Yahweh created the the Israelites to rule over the world in the uh, in the sense of the dominion, not slavery. Okay. But anyway, here's a Jew complaining about it. If it was if the world was created for our sakes, why do we not possess it as our inheritance? <laughs> well, it takes you have to do some work, right? You think we're just gonna hand it over to you, you Jew? Voltaire. Why are the Jews hated? It is the inevitable result of their laws. They either have to conquer everybody or be hated by the whole human race. Well said, Mr. Voltaire. Well, but nevertheless, even Voltaire and the encyclopedists were connived into doing the work of the perfidious Jew in the creating the French Revolution. That was totally staged by the, by the perfidious Jew. But in the vast majority of our people simply are not Jew savvy. And until they become Jew savvy and realize that virtually everything that's happening in the world today is nothing but Jew tricks, <laughs> then you'll never get what's going on. So let's continue here. Okay. Uh, I lost. This can't be Voltaire because... Uh, I'll have to re- further research this quotation. Zionist nation dares not to display an irreconcilable hatred toward all nations and revolts against all masters. Always superstitious, always greedy for the well-being enjoyed by others, always barbarous, cringing in misfortune and insolent in prosperity. Oh, that's such a good quote. Who's that from? Oh, I'm sorry, folks. It definitely, definitely can't be Voltaire. I'll have to research that to find out who the uh, author of this was. But anyway, let me repeat it because it's so good. The Zionist nation dares to display an irreconcilable hatred towards all nations and revolts against all masters. Always superstitious, always greedy for the well-being enjoyed by others, always barbarous. Cringing in misfortune and insolent in prosperity. Yep, that's your Jew. You seem to me to be the maddest of the lot. The Kafirs, the Hottentots, and the Negroes of Guinea are much more reasonable and more honest people than your ancestors, the Jews. You have surpassed all nations in impertinent fables, in bad conduct, and in barbarism. Now from Bernard Lazar, a Jew, The Secret Powers Behind Revolution, 1929. 
what virtues and what vices brought upon the Jew this universal enmity? Why was he in turn equally maltreated and hated by the Alexandrians and the Romans? Why by the Persians and by the Arabs, by the Turks and by the Christian nation? Because everywhere and up to the present day, the Jew was an unsociable being. Why was he unsociable? because he was exclusive and his exclusiveness was at the same time political and religious, or in other words, he kept to his political religious cult and his law, not to say the Bible. This faith in their predestination, in their election, enveloped in the Jews an immense pride, and they came to look upon non-Jews with contempt and often hatred when patriotic reasons were added to the theological ones. Well, yes. Judaism is a political movement, not a religious movement. As I have stated in the past, Judaism is not a religion. Judaism is organized crime masquerading as a religion. Henry Ford. The practical application of the Kabbalist knowledge is manifested in the use made of it through the ages by Jews to gain influence both in the higher spheres of Gentile life and over the masses. Sovereigns and popes both usually had one or more Jews as astrologers and advisors. Oh, even Ronald Reagan had an astrologer. And they frequently, or mainly his wife that used the astrologer, and they frequently gave Jews control over their very life by employing them as physicians. Even Hitler had a Jewish physician. Political power was thus gained by Jews in almost every Gentile country alongside with financial power. I guess Henry Ford wasn't able to warn Hitler against doing that. Actually, the reality is that Nazi Germany didn't persecute Jews nearly as much as people think. Because even in Berlin, there was a hospital totally run by Jews for, for Jewish inmates or patients, I should say. Throughout the war, they never publicized that fact. And there were a lot of Jewish uh, men in the uh, Nazi army. I don't know how much you can trust them, but I guess toward the end of the war, you had to uh, recruit people. Political power was thus gained by Jews in almost every Gentile country alongside with financial power since Zionist court bankers manipulated state funds and taxes. All right, court bankers. That's a good expression. Court bankers. Gore Vidal. So it's not like there are too few people aware of, of Jewish skullduggery. No other minority in American history has ever hijacked so much money from the American taxpayer in order to invest in a quote unquote homeland. Yeah, they keep sending money to Israel. It is as if the American taxpayer had to be had been obliged to support the Pope in his reconquest of the Papal States, simply because one-third of our people are Roman Catholic. Had this been attempted, there would have been a great uproar, and Congress would have said no. But a religious minority of less than 2% has bought or intimidated 70 senators, the necessary two-thirds to overcome an unlikely presidential veto, while enjoying support of the media. Okay, so there have been famous Americans make true statements about the Jews and get away with it. Karl Marx, 
Religion is the opiate of the people, and for that reason it is to be used as a principal means of disarming the Gentile, and once in power, through the pulpit and prayers, to keep him subjugated and subdued. Well, I guess that means he can't allow to be run by Gentiles. <laughs> by Christians. You can't allow Christianity to be run by Christians. John Neuhaus. Carry, carrying through on his threat upon leaving Rockford Institute to denounce erstwhile paleoconservative friends as anti-Semites, stated, quote, It is not only totalitarians who cannot stand Jews and Judaism. In this country, we are familiar with a brand of conservatism that is marked by nativist and chauvinist sentiment. It advocates a form of cultural coherence that requires a queer line between us and them. In the language of that conservatism, which fortunately is itself now marginal, the Jew is obtrusively marginal. Well, obtrusively marginal, right? Well, maybe all he's saying here is there are fewer and fewer Jews today, uh, percentage-wise, but they're still obtrusive, no matter where they go. They're very obtrusive. Richard M. Cohen, CBS News senior producer. Oh, no wonder CBS doesn't have any good news. We're, <clears throat> we're going to impose our agenda on the coverage by dealing with issues and subjects that we choose, okay? But here at Eurofolk Radio, we have all the news that Jews refuse. Richard Salant, former president of CBS News. Our job is to give people not what they want, but what we decide they ought to have, right? Uh, excuse me. I need a swig of coffee. James Fenimore Cooper, the American Democrat in 1838. It is the besetting vice of democracies to substitute public opinion for law. This is the usual form in which the masses of men exhibit their tyranny. Well, it's not democracy that does that. It's the Jew who controls the democracy that does that. 14th Amendment is what changed our law. And and it was never popular opinion in America, north or south, that blacks should gain the franchise. Never. That was exclusively the province of the Eastern liberal establishment, namely those Jew-controlled politicians and secret society members who were pushing, they're the ones who were actually pushing for the Civil War and for racial integration. Those were exclusively a very, very small, but very well-funded and noisy group of politicians on the East Coast. Very, and very deceitful lot. For example, they actually funded John Brown's campaign of terror in Kansas. And they funded him to go to uh, the ferry, Harper's Ferry, and make war against against the East Coast people. That was funded by these uh, these liberal you know, Jew-funded people on the East on the East Coast. They're called the Secret Six. I have their names, but uh, that's in another document. The Civil War was prosecuted by the international Jew, no doubt about it. 
But let me repeat this uh, quote. It's pretty good. It is the besetting vice of democracies to substitute, substitute public opinion for law. This is the usual form in which the masses of men exhibit their tyranny. Yeah, so, but their control, their opinions are formed by the Jewish media. And now these days by Jewish education. Adolf Hitler from Mein Kampf. The German people have no idea of the extent to which they have to be galled in order to be led. <laughs> well, to tell the truth about the Jews and realize what the Jews have done to them, <clears throat> that's how you gall the typical Christian. Well, I, I guess the Americans have to be galled as much as the German people were before they'll wake up. Then he says, the size of the lie is a definite factor in causing it to be believed. For the vast masses of the nations are in the depths of their hearts more easily deceived than they are consciously or intentionally bad. The primitive simpl simplicity of their minds renders them a more easy prey to a big lie than a small one. For they themselves often tell little lies, but would be ashamed to tell a big one. <laughs> Well said. That is really well said. Because a typical Christian would maybe tell little lies now and then. They would not dare to tell a big lie. So that when someone comes along telling a really big lie, like a big fat Jew, they believe it. Let me repeat this. This is, this is uh, wisdom beyond the pale. The size of the lie is a definite factor in causing it to be believed. For the vast masses of the nation are in the depths of their hearts, more easily deceived than they are consciously and intentionally bad. The primitive simplicity of their minds renders them a more easy prey to a big lie than a small one. For they themselves often tell little lies, but would be ashamed to tell a big one. This is, this is so good, I've got to put it in the chat room. So I'm going to copy and paste it into the chat room for y'all. Here it is. I didn't put who, who said that. Maybe you can share that with people and to guess who. <laughs> guess who said that? Okay. Okay. That, that's, that's, that's one for the ages. Well said, Adolf. Well said. Okay. All propaganda must be so popular and at such an intellectual level, hold on, that even the most stupid of those towards whom it is directed will understand it. Therefore, the intellectual level of the propaganda must be lower, the, must be lower than the larger number of people who are to be influenced by it. Yeah, well, dumbing down. That's why the Jews dumb us down. Well, unfortunately, education I mean, you can't dumb people down any further than you'd be totally illiterate, illiterate to get dumbed down any further. Through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell and also the other way around to consider the most wretched sort of life as a paradise. Well, that's liberalism, right? But even the, the, the dumbest liberal knows in order for this to be paradise, you you have to steal from one group of people, tax one group of people. Okay. 
Testing, one, two, three, four. Okay, testing, one, two, three, four. Ah. Okay. All right, Paul says we're back. Seems the issue was at Speak Free Radio. Very good. Thank you, Paul. All right, so, okay. So let, let's get back to the document. And I'm not sure how long uh, I've been off the air, but uh, we'll resume here. Let me repeat the uh, Zionist Declaration of war. In fact, I was just getting ready to uh, copy and paste it into the chat room because this is a very, very much important. Very good. Thank you, everybody. And it says over here. Okay, it's a very large quote, so I'm hoping it'll take in the chat room. There it is. Okay, finally appeared in the chat room. And so let me quote. This is the Zionist Declaration of War, 1933. The fight against Germany has now been waged for months by every Zionist community on every conference in all labor unions and by every single Jew in the world. There are reasons for the assumption that our share in this fight is of general importance. Well, they always have to make sure that the, the, the poorest Jew feels like he's part of the world Jewish organization. Not that they're being taken advantage of like the Goyim are. Of course they are. <laughs> the, the poorest Jews are being used, manipulated by the Zionists just as much as the Goyim are. We shall start a spiritual and material war of the whole world against Germany. Germany is striving to become once again a great nation. Oh no, we can't let that happen. And to recover her lost territories as well as her colonies. I don't think Hitler had any intention of re restoring colonies. But our Zionist interests call for the complete destruction of Germany. And that's why Germany had to be destroyed. Not because Germany was trying to conquer the world. It's because Germany stood in the way of the Jews conquering the world. Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsburg, New York Times, June 6, 1989. We have to recognize that Zionist blood and the blood of a goy are not the same thing. Well, even I would agree with that. Rabbi Yaakov Peren, New York Daily News, February 28, 1994. One million Arabs are not worth a Zionist fingernail. <laughs> okay. But the same is true for the Goyim. Uh, I'm sure the uh, the uh, Talmud has quotations to, to that effect about the Goyim. H.L. Mencken. I am one of the few Goyim who have ever actually tackled the Talmud. I suppose you now expect me to add that it is a profound and noble work, worthy of hard study and by all other than Goyim, or by all other Goyim. Unhappily, my report must differ from this expectation. It seems to me, save for a few bright spots, there must be blight. 
to be quite indistinguishable from rubbish. <laughs> okay, very good, but it's very profound rubbish in that it informs the vast majority of Jewish people whether they realize it or not. Rabbi Lewis Brown, spelled B-R-O-W-N-E, the old dream of a Messiah who would bring justice and freedom to all men was perverted into an ache for a ruthless conqueror, a warlord who would wade in the blood of every heathen who refused to bring sacrifices to Jerusalem three times a year. The Jews alone were considered blessed. The Goyim, the Gentiles, were all accursed. Well, that's Jew, the Jewish version of Scripture. Louis Jacolio. Read the Bible suffices to show that few people were more corrupt, few practiced more duplicity in their relations with neighbors, and that lastly, few had less respect for the property of others. Quote, Submissive obedience to the word of God or death, says Moses to the Hebrews, who in their turn say to the neighboring peoples, deliver up your wealth, your virgin daughters, and your... Actually, it worked the other way around for the Israelites. Again, it just shows that the non, non-scholared... Uh, Critics of the Bible who falsely equate Jews with Israelites don't understand who's being talked about here. We're not talking about Israelites. The vast majority, the Israelites were forbidden to have any kind of relationships except commerce with non-Israelites, and that even to a small extent because the Israelites produced their own wealth. Okay, the Jews have never done that. The Jews have survived only by stealing the wealth of others and by you know, cheating, <laughs> cheating and control and taking over businesses. So the Israelites never did that. Anthony, okay. Uh, oh, this is interesting. Anthony Hargis, don't know who that is. The Mosaic tax code is strikingly similar to the American tax code. Both are voluntary. That is, both offer alternatives to choose from. According to the Mosaic Code, one can choose to pay the tax or suffer other desolation. Well, I mean, if you if you are a sinner, you will suffer desolation. Under the American system, one can choose to pay the tax or suffer other desolation. Well, that's only under the Jews. I think he's talking about the IRS tax code. That didn't exist until the Jews took took over America. And our tax code, yeah, originally was very similar to the biblical tax code. The only people who had to pay taxes in the early days were, it was the, uh, I forget what they called it, but the uh, uh, taxes on profits due to international trade. That's the only thing that was taxed. country had to survive in uh, some way. That the Mosaic Code is an elaborate tax code should not surprise. No, it's not a tax code at all. It's a, it's a system by which you can avoid taxes by, by obeying Yahweh's laws. <laughs> so, so again, this is um, Anthony Hargis is projecting Judaism, what he th- thinks is Judaism in the Old Testament, projecting that back onto the Old Testament. That's where we get so much this, uh, you know, confusion by secular uh, critics of the Bible. They simply do not understand that the Jews are not Israelites, and therefore to you know, crit- crit- criticize the Bible in ancient Israel. As if they were Jews, is just you know pure rubbish. Okay. Mortimer Adler, who's a Jew, Marx was really the last of the great Hebrew prophets. <laughs> right, uh, because he was the one who created communism. There's no no more need for Jewish 
prophets. You just institute what he predicted. Reinhold Niebuhr, speech before the Zionist Institute of Religion, New York, October 3rd, 1944, 34 rather. Marxism is the modern form of Zionist prophecy. There you go. That's what I just said. Winston Churchill, Illustrated Sunday Herald. Okay, this is good. February 8th, 1920. Oh, I got to take another sip of my coffee. Again, this is Winston Churchill. There is no need to exaggerate the part played in the creation of Bolshevism and in the actual bringing about of the Russian Revolution by these international and, for the most part, atheistical Jews. Now, is he talking about bankers, too, or just communists? In the Soviet institutions, the predominance of Jews is even more astounding. And the prominent, if not indeed the principal part in the system of terrorism applied by the Extraordinary Commissions for Combating Counter-Revolution has been taken by Jews, and in some notable cases, by Jewesses. The same evil prominence was obtained by Jews in the brief period of terror during which Bela Kuhn, who was a Jew, ruled in Hungary. The same phenomenon has been presented in Germany, especially in Bavaria. So far as this madness has been allowed to prey upon the temporary prostration of the German people. So it's clear from this quote that Winston Churchill totally understood what the Jews had done to Russia and were about to do to Germany if not stopped. So what explains the fact that Winston Churchill became a diehard slash Zionist communist in his later years? Well, from all things that I've read, he was a, a, a gambler and a drunk, and he frittered his money away gambling and drinking. And not more than one Jew, or actually more than one Jew, uh, have paid his gambling debts, therefore enabling them to take control of his political career in the form of debts owed to the Jews. And he never stopped owing debts to the Jews till the day he died. That's what happened to Winston Churchill. The same, continuing now with this document, the same evil prominence was obtained by Jews in the brief period of terror during which Bela Kuhn ruled Germany. Okay. The fact that in many cases, Zionist interests and Zionist places of worship are accepted, that is, left out by the Bolsheviks from their universal hostility, has tended more and more to associate the Zionist race in Russia with villainies which are now being perpetrated. Needless to say, the most intense passions of revenge have been excited in the breasts of the Russian people. Yeah, unfortunately, they, they weren't able to succeed in revenging themselves against the Jews. All right, a few more quotes, because we're almost out of time. Dr. Oscar Levy, a Jew, in the preface to the world significance of the Russian Revolution by George Pitt Rivers, 1920. Quote, Bolshevism is a religion and a faith. How, how could those half-converted believers dream to vanquish the truthful and the faithful of their own creed, those holy crusaders who had gathered around the red standard of the prophet Karl Marx, but who fought under the daring guidance of those experienced officers of the latter-day revolutionaries, the Jews? There are 
a few remonstrant Jews who expose the facts of what Judaism really is. The Zionist Chronicle, September 22, 1922. Bolshevist officials of Russia are Jews. The Russian Revolution, with all its ghastly horrors, was a Zionist movement. Okay, openly admitted to by the Zionist Chronicle. Rabbi Louis Brown, again spelled B-R-O-W-N-E. Many Zionist names stand out prominently in those history-making revolutions. There are first the names of several Berlin Jewesses, Henrietta Hertz, Rahel Levin, and Moses Mendelssohn's daughters. Almost every great man of the period, for instance, Goethe, Schleiermacher, Victor Hugo, and Schlegel, seems to have made the acquaintance of these Jewesses at one time or another. Well, it's nice to have a uh, what a sponsor with a Jewish woman that has money. Okay, maybe she's looking for she wants to have a uh, you know an affair with a white man as opposed to having nothing but Jewish uh, homosexuals and child molesters around. Okay. Karl Marx, Ferdinand Lassalle, Jahan Jacobi, Gabriel Reiser, Adolf Cremier, Sonora Nathan, all of these Zionist lineage played important roles in the social struggle that went on throughout Europe in this period. Again, numerous admissions by Jews that Zionism and communism work hand in hand. Zionist histories rarely mention the name of this man, Karl Marx, though in his life and spirit he was far truer to the mission of the, Jew, of the Jews than most of those who were forever talking of it. He, he was born in Germany in 1818, and he belonged to an old rabbinical family. He was not himself reared as a Jew, or so he say. However, but while still a child, was baptized a Christian by his father. Yet the rebel soul of the Jew flamed in him throughout his days, for he was always a troubler or a troublemaker in Europe. He was banished from one land to another, and he was arrested and imprisoned many, many times. Okay. Maurice Samuel, our Zionism is not a creed. It is our totality. A Jew is a Jew in everything. We cannot conceive Jew. That's all we ask. That's all we ask in these end times. Stay tuned to uh, Dave and Dr. Dr. Duke. Dave and Duke show coming up right after this show, Bloodlines, on Spreak Free Radio. And it's telling me we've still got a little airtime here. Maybe there was a delay in the transmission. We had a break. Bye-bye.